Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, the 22nd of February, 2023. Uh, I'm in Washington, D.C., not uncoincidentally. Uh, Supreme Court is hearing a couple of cases, yet one yesterday on the role of Google in information and recommending ISIS videos. And then there's a big hearing today about Twitter. Um, the issue of the power of big media over our lives is, of course, increasingly central and government and the Supreme Court want to address it for better or worse. My guest today has an interesting take on how digital forces are making or remaking our world. David Auerbach um, has a new book out. Actually, it's going to be out next month. Meganets, How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. Uh, David should know this. He used to be an engineer at both Google and Microsoft. So he's seen the inner workings of big tech, and now he's putting it on paper. Um, some of you may also be familiar with his first book, Bitwise, A Life in Code, which was a memoir of his life as a coder. David is joining us from New York City. David, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So this book, David, um, sounds a little eerie, creepy, chilling. How digital forces beyond our control commandeer our daily lives and inner realities. Um, have we lost our agency to big tech, David? Well, the interesting thing is that big tech in some way has lost its agency too. The point that I make in the book is that even these companies, even these huge companies don't have the, the fine grained degree of control over our experience in these services that we might attribute to them. And it's, a, it, it's, it's good that you, that you bring up that Supreme court case because one of the underlying one of the underlying problems here is that there's so much content going so quickly on these networks, which I call meganets, that what we perceive as Facebook or Google, you know, not getting rid of offensive, unwanted content is actually more a matter of inability than it is a matter of choice. It's not that they profit off of some of the more vile stuff. It's that things are moving too fast and in too great quantities for even an incredibly powerful company or a group of humans to actually filter it before people see it and before it blows up. Are you suggesting then that the train or the airplane or the car doesn't really have a driver, that we are all passengers on this vehicle, which is driverless and out of control? Well, you could also look at it as saying it, uh, we are all collectively driving. And if we could all do the same, the right thing at the right time, things would be great. The problem is, is that there's no, that centralized control is, is being lost. Um, we each contribute little bits and pieces to these large meganets that in turn condition how they behave. The problem is, is that there's so many bits and pieces that um, looking to a centralized authority, say Google or even a government, isn't going to help, um, isn't going to help regulate things at a fine grained level. Define what you mean by meganet. I mean, it's a, an intriguing term. It brings all sorts of 
images to mind. It's is it the aggregation of Google and Facebook and um, and Microsoft and Twitter, or, or is there some sort of real more concrete meaning of what you mean by this word meganet? There's a concrete meaning, and it goes well beyond social networks. It includes things like cryptocurrency networks, online games, uh, surveillance systems. What I call it is it's a data network that is persistent, evolving, and opaque, uh, and one that controls how we see the world. Um, and its components are not just a huge farm of servers, but also millions to hundreds of millions of people that are constantly interacting with these servers, changing their algorithms and influencing their algorithms and their AIs in a way that's faster than we can actually keep track of and control. And that leads to the three qualities that I that I that define a meganet for me. That is a massive volume of content, a high velocity of uh, changing of content, transmission of content, and an explosive virality of fan out where content spreads uh, faster than we can faster than we can sort of gate it and close the barn door on it. D David the. Subtitle of your book suggests that digital forces are commandeering mm -hmm. our daily lives and inner realities. A lot of people are going to be watching this and saying, uh, digital forces haven't commandeered my daily life. I still go about my daily life regularly. I might check my email or my social media updates, but it's having no impact. I'm not in any crypto network. Can you explain what you mean by this commandeering of our daily lives? So much of even offline now, life is now conditioned, administered, and regulated by uh, by com computational processes and algorithms that it's very hard to go to a place and see that and see and see that it's not impacted in some way or another. Every time you use a credit card, you're getting involved, say, with a credit your credit rating, your credit. Um, credit ratings are being influenced and uh, a digital profile is being put together on you. Even if you don't intend it to, your actions are going to have a ripple effect, not just in the particular domain that you've been acting, but when other companies see the information that's being gathered on you, no matter where you go. It's akin to if you're walking down the street and you did have eyes on you, because in effect you do. It's just that we don't see the eyes and we don't see the repercussions of uh, that data that's collected. That said, there's also, of course, the data we voluntarily put into these systems uh, by interacting with them, talking on them. And that has but they've been explaining, it, it all sounds intriguing, but it's very abstract. So I went to a restaurant last night in Washington, D.C. I used my credit card. I take your point that maybe someone somewhere or some system somewhere is aggregating that data and creating smarter networks. But how's that commandeering my life? I'm still using my credit cards. I'm not making any difference. I still go to bed at night. No one's watching me. No one well, knows what I'm doing. A lot of people seem creeped out if they go to a restaurant and then they see an advertisement for that restaurant on Facebook the next day. How did Facebook find out about it? You know, now you can say that that's not commandeering it, but it certainly involves a degree of observation and control that I think a lot of people aren't exactly comfortable with. But as far as commandeering, but Facebook is a particularly corrosive, and everybody knows about Facebook. I'm not on Facebook, um, and I'm not really on most social networks. So, how is this impacting me? How is it commandeering my life? 
let's say you want to um, let's say you want to take out a mortgage on a house. It's not just credit ratings, although credit ratings are part of it, but there are actually increasing credit services that also suck up your activities. You may not think that you're online, but in fact, most of your life is online, even if you aren't aware of that. But back to that restaurant, that's not having any impact on whether or not I, I get a mortgage to, to be able to buy a house. I just because every single thing isn't connected doesn't mean that <laughs> doesn't mean that it couldn't be. Let's say that you let's say that you mistreated a waiter at the restaurant and that waiter then goes out on Twitter and says Andrew Keane was a real jerk at the restaurant last night. That's one way it could impact you. Impact my mortgage application or impact my online Your reputation? reputation? Your reputation. Well, a lot of people have made these um, observations and warnings, David, over the years. We've had many of them on the show. I've written, written some books of my own about this, but I, I still don't quite understand yeah, my, my what, point what is the mega that argument the fits in. My point is that we look at these problems and we say, oh, we could solve them if only, we, if only companies would just call, lower the temperature and calm down the temperature. You see policies... You see policy solutions everywhere saying like, well, we just need to get in regulators to like make sure that Facebook doesn't or Twitter doesn't put, you know, misleading information up on the web. Um, we need to say that uh, we, we need to get it so that uh, so that, you know, identification systems aren't prone to miss to misuse, you know, in India, for example, here's an example that I can give to you. At all of uh, all of government identity services are in India are unified under a single number called Aadhaar, and I think that this is a, and this is a trend that's happening everywhere. Where, in effect, your offline and online identity is getting unified around a single uh, a single account, single identifier. And the and if something goes wrong with that, that has far more repercussions than what you might see today, where, okay, let's say your credit card number has gotten stolen. That doesn't necessarily mean someone can steal your identity because they don't yet have your social security number. But right now in India, it's one number. And well, that well, number let's is... use the Indian example of Adhar. Two, two responses on that. Firstly, um, the argument in India, I've done some work on this myself and I've interviewed one of the founders of, of the system is that it provides many Indians who previously were entirely invisible when it came to the financial system with some sort of identity, which enables them to get credit um, and become players in, in, in the modern financial world. So the argument is that it's actually liberating for those Indians without any, uh, any identity prior to Adhar. And the other thing is, is that the Indian model is, is pretty controversial. It's not being... It's, it's not being adopted. reproduced in the United It's already been adopted in Bolivia. And my argument is that as as these systems get grow, it's going to be very hard for, to avoid something like this happening simply because there's going to be tremendous pressure to coalesce these systems rather than having tremendous redundancy in a bazillion uh, different account numbers, both for government and non-government services. So however controversial it is, it's already run out of control in India. It was supposed to be optional and it is technically still optional, but it's all but mandatory. You were never supposed to need 
an ad hard number to get a cell phone, but more or less you do now. So this system already had impacts that its designers did not intend. And, um, and they seem to have been powerless to restrict, to contain that. And I don't see why India should be, should be so such an, such an anomaly, except in that they're ahead of the pack. I think that this is going to become the standard simply because. What about the, the Chinese model, which is in some ways much more chilling? Hmm. The Chinese model. Which Chinese model? Well, the model of social credit of a state. Yeah. So rewarding or punishing, depending on your. Right. So this is actually chapter chapter six or seven in my book, which is a comparison of social credit and Adhar. And the irony is that the Chinese system, while far, well, obviously far less democratic and much more authoritarian, is actually far less pervasive. Social credit is more of a threat than it is an actual uh, everyday uh presence. It's used primarily against people who've been convicted rightly or wrongly uh, to restrict their movements, but it's not yet employed against, um, you know, what whoever China considers to be well-behaved citizens. So the irony there is that for, for reasons that, that merit um, uh, investigation, uh, the Indian system is actually more pervasive, even though it's taking place in a democratic society. David, uh, as I said, you've spent your life in in this world. You worked um, both for Google and Microsoft as a as software engineer. Does this m make you regretful of how you've invested most of your time in your life? Does it make you feel a little guilty? I mean, obviously, you're not to blame, but you are a small piece in the creation of what you call a, a mega net. No, not at all. I love technology. I um, and there are many good things about it too. When you talk about Adhar, it's some of the positive contentions you make could be debated, but yeah, of course it has. If nothing else, it is far more efficient. Um, and my attitude is that these things are fatalist. That is a somewhat fatalistic attitude. You know, it's like does the person who invented the steam engine regret it? Well, he's dead now, but, you know, one can look at, you know, you the things that you build, they have much greater impact on society than the actual technology does. So what's happened is that technology has been injected into society and it's being picked up at large and being uh, and being and, and having unintended consequences. And my point is that these systems effectively are running on their own accord now closer to the weather than to you know what we might have thought of as a soft windows or something or a discrete software program from but there's no real in your mind there's no real separation between metanets and humans it's it's entered us even if we don't actually know it yeah yeah we're constantly that's and that's why these companies don't have control over it when you know when all those ais started behaving weird when you know there was a controversy about microsoft's sydney ai and it's saying that it wanted to release the nuclear codes and destroy the world or something like that it was repeating back to us all the things that humans have said that have gotten fed into it all, everything it was fed books it was fed uh twitter it was fed wikipedia so we all contributed it to a bit if humanity was different it would be different so Oh, it's a um, giant mirror. Um, and you mentioned AI and this recent controversy, uh, Sydney and Microsoft, who, of course, major investors in 
OpenAI's ChatGPT. I'm assuming that for you, ChatGPT then isn't particularly surprising. It it's in in, a, in an odd way one of the consequences of of a meganet. It's very a, it's much so. People say, how is it that Microsoft and Google could could release AIs that have such problems or do such blatantly thing, blatantly bizarre things? Well, that's because they have a lot less control over what what such an AI does than we think they, they do. They can't just go in and turn a nut and bolt and suddenly it'll stop acting weird, uh, not in the least. It's taking huge amounts of data, more data than anyone could ever screen. And um, and and depending on how you prompt it, it can put out some weird stuff. The chat GPT creators spent you know a year making its political opinions as boring and neutral as possible. And you can and it's gotten a lot better, but you can still uh, you can still coerce it to say things that know that most people not want to hear it say. So there's increasingly a blur between humans and mach smart machines. And I sometimes ask this of my guest, David, when we talk AI, um, how can we be certain or how can I be certain that you're not an AI? I was asked this question the other day, and in some ways you can say you can't for sure. You need to know enough about sort of what the current standard is in AI and what uh, and, and, and how to trick it. But you need to be fairly educated. And we're going to see people getting tricked by them increasingly. And that's another way, reason, way in which I would say this is how you're going to be impacted by it. You're going to start dealing when you, I assume you call customer service sometimes and deal with those automated chat lines. Those chat lines are going to be increasingly conditioned by human behavior, including your human behavior. If you yell at a customer service chat bot because you're fed up with it, that will get incorporated into the next iteration of the, of the customer service chat bots uh, workings and logic. So uh, a lot of people are going to be thinking, are we heading towards Blade Runner, which, of course, was, was based on a, a very famous short story uh, about a world where we struggled to distinguish between humans and, and machines. Um, are we entering a world of replicators, David? No, because I, the thing is, is that they're still going to be pretty dumb. The problem is, is that humans act dumb enough that you'll be able to confuse them. You know, there's going to be, I would say, an AI is not capable of having the conversation we're having right now. Exactly why. Is this a good conversation? Or is that because we're particularly smart people or because uh, it, has to do with the, it has to do with the linkages and the contexts. Um, we're sort of working within enough of a holistic view that we're sort of jumping from subject to subject in a coherent way. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone could identify our conversation as definitely not being with an AI, but I think that um, that there are definitely there are indicators that would say, yeah, no, this couldn't be this couldn't be the case. Where you're going to see a lot less a lot less ability to distinguish is in more restricted contexts. Where oh, am I talking to a human, customer service agent, or a or, or a non-human one? The more, the more I do this show, David, the more predictable um, the conversations become with my guests and the more predictable their books seem to be. Is there any coincidence between the emergence of smart machines and our predictability, our conformi 
uh, the, the, the sort of the, the increasingly conformist not. nature of our society, or am, am I imagining something? You're absolutely not. That's one of the big theses of my book, actually, which is that because algorithms tend to favor um, favor what is most popular, what is most homogeneous, it gets spit back to us by filters. It gets spit back to us by recommendation algorithms. We are encouraged to do and view and see things that are similar to what we've already done. And that does cause a feedback loop of reinforcement. And so that increased homogeneity, that increased um, desire to seek out people who think the exact way you do, or actually just being lumped with them automatically by algorithms who see, okay, here are a bunch of people who who seem to talk the same way and feel the same way as you do, why don't we put you into social groups together so you can reinforce each other's views some more? I think you're absolutely right because the um, it, it is in the nature of meganets to reinforce what's already there and to avoid say, say, um, grouping things that are different because it has no reason to do so unless we actually tell it to. That is, of course, one of my recommendations that we should have, we should explicitly have meganets try to mix things up a bit. But by default, things are categorized like with like because people tend to like the things that they, that are. How, that how are new like, is this? Thing? I mean, obviously, the internet's new, but this message that we're all saying the same thing, I mean, in American intellectual history, Thoreau and Emerson went on and on about this. John Stuart Mill built a whole theory of liberalism and individual rights around it this doesn't seem to be very new in human history we're always fearing conformity we're always fearing something is there something new about meganets in the history of human beings yes it's ex it's exaggerate it's exacerbated and amplified those trends you can now find people who are very much like you to a mu with much more easily than you could if you if you could only associate with those people who are geographically in your vicinity it, you know, previously you were somewhat forced to um, forced to associate with, forced to deal with things that weren't like you. Now, with a glut of content, the chances of you being able to find something that lines up very much with what you have already experienced, felt, whatever, is much higher. So the possibility for that kind of conformity is so much higher than it has ever been in history before you know the rise of these meganets. It's the it's the growth in content and the and the lack of any we're, we're always changing how we see ourselves. We live in an age where people increasingly define themselves in the color of their skin or their ethnicity. It hasn't always been the case. No, that's we also define ourselves also according to our political ideas, our sexuality, where we live, what we eat, who mm -hmm. we speak to, what we read. I mean, there's infinite criteria for self-definition, isn't there? Yeah, but all of these criteria are then being uploaded. And Facebook, if Facebook recommends this or that to you because, oh, you share a bunch of these criteria with other people, that's a push towards homogeneity. If you really want to strike out and be different, you can, but both computational and social pressures mitigate against that. There's not well, Most people are watching this don't want to be sheep. The mm -hmm. Um, so and all the people who don't can we just get off. I mentioned earlier, I'm not on Facebook. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but it's also an old cliche that people who don't want to be sheep all get together and stop being sheep in the exact same way. You know, 
So is there anything, so again, coming back to the core argument here, digital forces beyond our control commandeer our daily lives and inner realities, it suggests that this isn't particularly good news. There's nothing we can do about it because they're beyond our control. And half the time, we don't even understand how they can commandeering our daily lives and inner realities. Have you completely given up on human, on, on, on agency? I mean, you seem to have some agency in being able to write this book and observe these forces. Uh, it could be an illusion. I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I've been fortunate in that I've, I've existed in a lot of different contexts. You know, I was a programmer, I was a journalist, I've been an author. So I had a wider variety of experience and I feel fortunate to have had that. I hope that that's given me a bit of a different, uh, a different perspective. Well, okay. I take your point. So leaving aside you, what, what can we do then? I mean, for most people watching well, this, they may have a sense you're right, but mm -hmm. you're, you're so, suggesting that formal regulating of big tech doesn't really work because the mega nets beyond the Googles and Facebooks of the world. What can well, we do? So with regard to that Supreme Court case today, if you say, okay, Google, you can't, you've got to get rid of every bit of whatever bad content on your service, they're not going to be able to do it. So the question is, what can you do? Well, you can't target the bad content, but you can have some broader um, non-targeted changes to try to, um, to try to um, de-ossify and break up some of the mess that you're facing you know so one of the things that i was saying is actually inject into recommendation engines recommendations of things that are distinctly different from what a person likes that meganets have certain tendencies like grouping like with like is one of them so you can actually try you can actually guide it you can you can at least sort of nudge it in a somewhat um um non-instinctive direction if you actually say okay we're going to stop just letting the algorithms group group of their own accord and we're actually going to require them to be suboptimal or actually like get the data to be dirtier uh you can do things like slow down the um the distribution of content in the run-up to the 2020 election facebook actually put huge restrictions on how many uh, people you could forward any a link to and actually ban political advertising altogether. They did that because that was the best they could manage. They weren't going to be able to filter things one by one, even Facebook. So by slowing things down, by preventing how, how crises get out of hand online, by preventing how just chaos and viral content gets out of hand, you can at least mitigate some of these tendencies that I'm talking about. Are we still going in that direction? We could well be, but um, you know, my my point is not to say that I have the answers, but to say, okay, here's the diagnosis and why I think that what we're doing isn't working. When I see people complaining nonstop and insisting on that, either either shaking their fist impotently at tech companies or um, or thinking that some sort of regulatory regime will just come in and fix everything, I think that that's not going to work. So I'm trying to say, okay, here's a general direction that you can go and that I think will work a lot better, or at least has much more promise. Are you going to stop the train from going? Honestly, I wouldn't say I'm that optimistic, but I don't think that give, there's no point in giving up. 
you know, I think that we're, first we have to accept reality as we have as we have it. And that's then that's the point of the book is to present reality, a more accurate picture. Of How can Meganet, David, help us rebuild some of our institutions in crisis? You and I both live in the United States. It seems as if many of the the, the, the meta institutions are in crisis, whether it's the healthcare system or the education system or the political system. Can Metanet, there was a lot of op there was a lot of optimism about the internet when it was born up until about maybe 10 years ago when the zeitgeist turned against the digital revolution. But can Meganet still help enrich our daily lives and inner realities and make society a better place? I mean, they already do. You know, I, I, I think I focus on the problems because I think that that's what urgently needs a discussion. But I won't deny the contribution that these things make in terms of accessibility, communication, um, and, and, and the spreading of knowledge. The problem is that the good things are often swamped by the bad aspects. And the, can we retain the good parts while, while mitigating the bad ones? Um, you know, there are, there's potential for new forms of human organization. You know, can, is there some sort of decentralized healthcare system, health healthcare thing that would actually take insurance companies out of the equation? I don't know, maybe, uh, but technology does enable such things. You know, cryptocurrency, fans of cryptocurrency will argue that they are the model for it. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but you know, the idea of cryptocurrency has some good things to it, even though it has, incredible risks and incredible excess to it as well as we've seen um and the problem is is that can you get the good without the bad aspects of it potentially destabilizing the global financial system i hope so i really hope so you don't sound very helpful up until a few months ago there was a lot of talk a lot of buzz about what people in silicon valley and tech called web3 decentralized networks a lot of in my view, at least, a utopian thought that we could build new worlds without central authority. Is there anything in that or a meta? I mean, it seems as if your your notion of a, of a mega net is already a rather sort of dark, amorphous version of Web3. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I, from my perspective, Web3 is just an expanded version of what we already have. People say, oh, Web Web 3.0 will be it will be it will absorb us and and take over our daily lives. Well, we're already there. You know what's going to happen? Well, there it might be more. Um, you know, VR is coming. But from my perspective, um, well, Web 3.0 is sort of a marketing term. It has a it, it, it's it, it was it includes a couple some disparate technologies under a single rubric. From my perspective, the VR component is there, but it's not going to be, but it, it's slower simply because the technology isn't quite there yet and the rollout isn't there yet. The real goal of it is creating a new economy of virtual goods, more stuff to sell, uh, uh, ideally to be bought with cryptocurrency. In other words, virtual goods that you can buy online and show off that you have online, monetizing online life in ways that haven't been possible so far. That is Web 3.0 as far as I can tell. But the idea of... Um, and that is coming, for sure. <laughs> the idea of a decentralized network controlling everything. I mean, that's what your argument about Meganet is, that it's there's no central institution or even logic. It's just there. It's this huge blob out yeah, there, which is 
actually taken over not just daily life, but our inner lives too. There are different degrees of decentralization. Um, with something like cryptocurrency, it's almost anarchic. And I think that we're going to see some tempering of that. There are going to be, these networks are administered by people. And even if they don't have control over them, you know, these companies do retain some amount of authority over um, the algorithms or AIs or whatever. So there will be, there still will be some, there's still coalescing in an elite, in the form of an elite or in giant corporations. It's just that they will never have the degree of control that they used to. You know, they are not going to be how Microsoft ruled with Windows, for example. Um, but at the same time, total decentralization and anarchy, I don't think, it, it's not that, I don't think that that's going to be workable either. What you're going to see is, is uh, there's going to be a devolution of, of power and control so that everybody gets a little more control, but there will still be pockets of centralization. It's just that, like, as we've seen with Facebook, they will frequently be, get a lot more, a lot more criticism and not be able to do anything about it. Where are we in the history of the mega net? Is it, are we in the early stages? I mean, people always use the cliche of baseball and we're in the beginning of the bottom yeah, of the first, top of the third, as the game even started, is it finished? Early, first inning, yeah. I mean, I... It's always my... the first inning and then the game's ended. No one ever talks about the fifth or the sixth inning, Dave. Um, well, usually that's because a different term comes around and they say it's now the first inning of that, you know. <laughs> Do we need a better word? I mean, you clearly know your stuff. You're very original. You 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 write well, and 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 you've also been a coder, but it seems to me that the word meganets is is so uninspiring. Everyone always puts nets. There have been so many books out with nets in it. Do we need to come up with some new languages? And does that reflect the fact that perhaps things haven't changed as much as we think they have because we can't even come up with language that somehow reflects them? Well, titles and branding are tricky things, and you know it's. It's my neologism, and I, I I take responsibility for it. But you know, are you happy with people. it? Hmm? Yeah. I'm are you happy with, with the word mega net? Sure, I'm happy with it. I have much bigger things to worry about, so I'm I'm happy with it. Um, you know, Eidolon was considered at a certain point, but was vetoed. So, what was considered? Eidolon. Eidolon meaning I D L E, and then O N. Eidolon, yeah, yeah. Suggesting uh, that this thing was kind of alive, irrespective of whether you switched the machine on or off. It's it's a, that that it was and that it had a certain uh, a mirror aspect. Uh, it, 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 that it, that it worked as a uh, a specter of reality, but one that was taking over, uh, you know, reality as we knew it. Do we have? Um, you said we're in the bottom of the first inning, David. In this history, the narrative of the meganets do we humans have a history after the meganet post meganet world are we uh, done once the meganets finish the game's over well, then we can go home as a species no we're part well we're part of it that's the thing is that we feed into it i think the that what's changing is that our ability to see the big picture is decreasing you know year by year because the picture is getting too big you're getting to you're getting these systems that are literally too big for any human or group of humans to comprehend. That's why AI is being put up as, okay, well, maybe AI can actually fix, you know, maybe AI can actually fix, 
it can administer them for us. Unfortunately, it just it's the same problem all over again, which is oh, okay, whoops. Now we have the AI and we don't know what and we don't know what it's doing. And when it does something wrong, we can't fix it. So it just becomes sort of a regress. Um uh, so, uh, so I mean, we're going to be part of it. It's just that the nature of, of, you know, the book is speaking to what I, do, what people I do sense among people is a loss of control over many aspects of life. That things do not seem to be as controllable as they used to be, and I think that that is true. And I, this is my attempt to say why. Does that mean that things will fall apart? I don't know. They might not, but it is going to be different. And our sense of what we can and can't control. We are very accustomed to the global economy doing crazy things on a dime. Well, here's another thing that might do crazy things on a dime. And we're going to see how that happens. And the global economy is mitigated in various ways through the actions of various uh, 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 governments and, and NGOs. That could be true here, too. But for us to think that we have control over this technology in the way that we used to have tech control over technology and software that i think that idea i think is dead yeah 